This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. It's been an absolutely crazy week of news in the media and political world, and we're going to get into all of that later. But first, this week, CJR published a story about how the media has adopted a kinder and gentler tone around the opioid crisis. Contributor Michael Shaw used a series of photos to show journalists' softer approach. And he's not the only one talking about this. Leah Finnegan is the features editor at The Outline and the brains behind Leah Letter, her weekly newsletter about the media. Like Shaw's piece, her most recent newsletter dissected how the media reports on drugs and drug addiction. CJR's Meg Dalton went down to The Outline's offices in New York to sit with Leah and discuss what the media is getting wrong and how it can do it better. Leah Finnegan, I've been an avid reader of your newsletter since probably January, um, but this one really struck me. Can you walk us through the inspiration behind it? Last week, there was a big story in The Times about a lawyer who was a heroin addict, and he died from an infection related to using heroin. And the story really bothered me, which is like mainly the reaction I have when I read the New York Times, because it was told from a very kind of naive point of view. The New York Times article was written by the lawyer's ex-wife, Eileen Zimmerman. She had no idea he was addicted to drugs when he was alive. And after his death, she did what Leah calls a, quote, journalistic inquiry into how she could have missed the signs of his heroin addiction. And she premised it on the fact that there's very little known about lawyers and addiction and that many lawyers use drugs and that's like a part of the culture that isn't talked about. It's a painful account of the lawyer's death, but also revealing about the media's portrayal of drug addiction. The lawyer, who is white, is emblematic of a much larger trend. But really what struck me about the article was how when we report about white people using drugs, it's always in a more sympathetic light. So this guy was like super smart, super successful. That was emphasized over and over again. And there's the disbelief that he would ever do something as stupid as become addicted to heroin, when of course addiction knows no bounds, it affects everyone. And then there was another article that struck Leah, too, this time from the Associated Press. It was about how there was an epidemic of syringes being found in parks in Portland. And children were sometimes handling these syringes, and officials were saying it was a public health crisis. Sure, it's dangerous for children to handle these used syringes. But Leah says the AP missed the real story. The reporting is focusing on the threat to non-drug users and not the fate of drug users. The article 
went on and on without mentioning like how many addicts there are, whether these addicts live or die, like if there's treatment for them. It was just focused on the needles they leave behind and how those could possibly hurt children. So it was a very weird hypothetical that really bypassed like the staggering human face of addiction. That's something you see a lot when journalists report on drugs. And it's also something that's usually racialized. Well, when a white person is an addict or uses drugs, he is sick. He's portrayed as a sick person who needs treatment and the government needs to write up better policy to help addicts. When a black person does drugs, they're portrayed as a criminal and it's their fault they're addicted to drugs. It blames them for the addiction, not the dealers selling the drugs or the lack of treatment available to them. It's a striking disparity, especially in the lawyer article, where it was emphasized again and again how smart and successful he was and how no one around him recognized he was addicted, even though he was doing things like getting syringes sent to his house from Amazon. It was more logical to assume that he was just stocking up on medical supplies instead of using those needles for drugs. Journalists are shaped by their own internal biases, whether they like it or not. So how can we break through that to cover drug addiction more responsibly? I think it's helpful to read past coverage of addiction and kind of see how these trends in like how white people are portrayed versus people of color. It's also helpful to like go through actual treatment centers and talk to them. And there are a lot of like harm reduction activists who work with addicts and will portray the situation more realistically. So it isn't a new trend. This is like a media blind spot. You can go back to the crack cocaine era where it was like totally blamed on black people for becoming addicted to this drug when, of course, it's not your fault if you're addicted to a drug. And going up to today, that's kind of been the stereotype that's been carried through. And is this is this blind spot unique to coverage of drugs or does it extend beyond that? It's just more a general theme in the media for as long as the media has existed and been run by mostly white people who see things a certain way. The media blind spot has become more noticeable today because of the uptick in opioid addiction, which is mostly affecting white people. There's a new face of drug use, and that's affecting how the policymakers are responding too. In the past, when addictions were uh, occurring in black communities, that was their fault. And it was time for the government to arrest them. The drug users were the enemies and they weren't human. They were people who chose to do drugs and the, that was illegal and bad and wrong and they deserve to be punished. So how can we as journalists do better? Like the, the lawyer story was generous and it's humanizing of its subject. And I think all subjects deserve that kind of... Um, recognition and the the space to have their stories told that the stories of their lives that aren't defined by their addiction and rather seeing addiction as a separate thing that happened to them instead of something they chose to do. Coverage of the war on drugs wasn't the only thing we were talking about around the office. Once again, guys, it's been a week. 
We sat here yesterday on Thursday afternoon recording a podcast about how crazy the new communications director strategy had been, how the chaos over the voting on health care reform was taking place in the Senate under the cover of secrecy. And then we all went home last night and realized we were going to have to come back today and do this all over again. So let's start with healthcare, which is the most important story out there before we get to Anthony Scaramucci and an absolutely batshit crazy interview that he gave to The New Yorker. Last night, the GOP effort to repeal and replace Obamacare came to what we think might be an end, although we've thought that before and it has come back to life. But around 1.30 in the morning, Senator John McCain from Arizona strolled into the well of the Senate and cast a deciding vote that doomed the GOP effort to pass what's been called a skinny repeal. What did you guys think of this? I mean, I think you actually said it pretty well in your morning newsletter uh, today, which is that, you know, we don't often end up getting, what was it exactly, something about the movies? Yeah, I mean, I it mean, was, it, if Aaron Sorkin had written this, people uh, would have been like, oh, that's, that's too much. That's him going on in the drama. Stuff doesn't really happen that way in Washington. Yeah, so McCain waltzes in at 1.30 in the morning, stands in the middle of Senate chambers, holds out his fist, and then gives a thumb down sign. Yeah, something out of Gladiator. I was just going to say something out of Gladiator. Like, Gladiator. Like, he's an emperor. Or he's just... Anyway. And then you see kind of like Mitch McConnell (laughs) reacting. Stone-faced. Stone-faced. I really want to make that into my, like, Twitter background. Um, And then then in the far left-hand corner, you see Chuck Schumer trying to quiet down the Democrat shock and also maybe applause. I mean, it was a moment unlike anything I've seen in politics. We get the big soaring speech sometimes, but actual votes in the Senate, unless it is on TV or in the movies, are rarely this dramatic. And it took place at 1.30 in the morning. I was, I fell asleep to C-SPAN. I can't claim that I was actually awake through it. And if you need a sleep aid, I suggest C-SPAN. But this is, this is a huge moment in journalism, right? Covering the, the goings on in Washington. And How did you think that the coverage has played out, at least since we all woke up early this morning, to get the news? I mean, I think first and foremost, everyone's been really focused, not necessarily on uh, the bill itself, but on McCain. Yeah, he definitely, I mean, because he was a former presidential candidate, because by this point, everybody knows his story, and because he has this dramatic narrative of dealing with cancer, being a prisoner of war, being a map, all of these things. We know John McCain, right? He is a big figure in American politics and American media. Um, I've noticed that in the last few hours, even in the late morning, the focus has kind of course corrected to the two GOP women senators who were against this bill from the start, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Yeah, that was one of my uh, biggest issues, I think, with media coverage following the 1.30 a.m. dramatic moment is that oftentimes when things like this happen, it's not, there's no, the person that gets kind of the quote spotlight is that person who makes the last minute decision to vote yay or nay. Whereas there, you know, Murkowski and Collins have been outspoken against the bill. Even in the face of pressure from President Trump's Twitter feed and apparently a phone call from Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke to Murkowski threatening funding to uh, certain programs in Alaska. It has been just, again, an absolutely crazy process. We didn't even see this bill until yesterday evening. It went to vote 
hours later as journalists scrambled to report what was in it. Some senators certainly hadn't, it was only an eight-page document, but some senators certainly hadn't fully appreciated the impact of the law changes uh, that would come with this bill. And I think the fact that we've been talking about this for seven months and it came to this culmination in the middle of the night, it really makes for uh, an incredible media moment. I think what's happened in the last 24 hours with the health care bill is kind of a microcosm of what the whole process has been like this spring, trying to get something passed. It's like all of the quick turns and changes and all of the drama and the media coverage and not knowing what's going to be coming out. And then like at the last minute, the bill finally comes through and who's going to vote and who isn't. I feel like the whole spring, like we've barely known what the health care effort has going to be in terms of repeal and replace. Like for a long time, the issue was that news outlets didn't even know what to print about it because we didn't know any of the details in the bill. And so the idea, like the fact that like last night we didn't know it was going to be like in the bill until later in the evening and everything was going on until like the wee hour. I mean, it's very much in keeping with the way things have been going uh, in the House and Senate this spring. Um, and this probably probably indicative of what's going to continue to happen, <laughs> I think. Right. Well, also indicative of what we may be expecting going forward was the bombast and vulgarities from our new White House communications chief. This conversation that Anthony Scaramucci had on the record, apparently, uh, <laughs> whether he realized whether he it realized it or not, this <laughs> oh. interview was insane. And Ryan Lizza, a writer at The New Yorker, had been called by Scaramucci on Wednesday night. He had tweeted out earlier the attendees at a White House dinner. Um, Scaramucci was mad that that had been leaked, assumed that Reince Priebus had been the leaker and called up Lizza demanding that he reveal or confirm his source. Talk about taking like a non-issue and then turning it into like the biggest issue. Like, so the people who were meeting at the White House for dinner was that was leaked. So not yeah. the whatever. It wasn't scandalous. It wasn't whatever. So he calls and he just unleashes the fury of. It's anyway. like it's like the communications director has the biggest trouble communicating. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, and it also is really worrisome because he's a communications director and apparently doesn't know how off the record works. Which you know, if he doesn't know how that works, then there are probably a lot of things he that does. He understand. definitely does. I want to get to the worrisome parts, but can we just first go through some of the funny parts? Yes. Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. I'm going to read. Tote bags to come. And oh, man. <laughs> seeing them on the streets of Brooklyn soon. I'm going to read from this New York article that everyone should go read the totality of because it is crazy. But it has everything in it. Threats to White House staff, uh, threats to journalists, which we'll get to on a serious note later, and some of the most as Sarah Huckabee Sanders called it, colorful language that you are ever likely to read in a major publication. That's a nice way to phrase it. Mm -hmm. So, Anthony Scaramucci talking about White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus. Reince is a fucking paranoid schizophrenic. A paranoiac, Scaramucci said. He channeled Priebus as he spoke, Oh, Bill Shine is coming in? Let me leak the fucking thing and see if I can cockblock these people the way I cockblocked Scaramucci for six months. You guys want you guys want more? Wait, wait. There's more. There's, there's more. You haven't gotten to my favorite. There's yet. there's so much more, and okay. it makes me cringe every time. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a break from calling out White House senior staff by name and go to what Scaramucci said about leakers. Quote: What I want to do is I want to fucking kill all the leakers, and I want to get the president's agenda on track so we can succeed for the American people. 
which I feel like Trump might see that quote and say, you know what? He's a colorful guy. He's uh, got passion. And I know he's supporting my agenda. Yeah, I actually don't know that Trump is going to care that much, really, until he starts to feel the political fallout from it. Mm. I mean, so far, this is all in line with, like, the reality TV show that we're watching unfold in the White House right now. Right. And I want you touched on something there because he is getting attention, and I would argue too much attention, especially last night, which we can get to in a second. But one more fun quote, which is about Steve Bannon, senior advisor to the president, who Scaramucci says uh, is trying to raise his profile a bit too much and build build his brand in some ways. So here's his quote about Steve Bannon. Quote, I'm not Steve Bannon. I'm not trying to suck my own cock. He said, speaking of Trump's chief strategist. It's just, just like, <laughs> I mean, like what people were saying on Twitter all last night and this morning is true, which is that there are reporters who go their entire careers trying to get one line like that. And then, you know, Liz is just like sitting around last night doing or not last night, night Wednesday before night, yeah. Wednesday night. Liz is just sitting around Wednesday night and gets a phone call and just this like the treasure trove of (laughs) ridiculous quotes are just handed to him. Yeah, it was (laughs) an amazing night on Twitter as everybody responded to this. But there's there's two actual serious points I want to bring up coming out of this. And one is that as I was flipping around at 10 o'clock last night, going through the cable channels, hanging out with Sean Hannity and Don Lemon, as, you know, I, I tend to do on a Thursday night, I don't Hanging have a very out. interesting life. You're um, so cool, Pete. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> but no, what everybody led with, Lawrence O'Donnell at MSNBC, Lemon at CNN, everybody was leading with this stuff, which is funny and is shocking and is somewhat scary given that this guy is supposed to be the communications chief. But at the same time, there was a vote and a debate going on about Healthcare reform. So you could argue that so far the Trump administration, the Trump White House, has been very unsuccessful at uh, fulfilling their campaign promises, at f- going after their agenda, its agenda, whatever. Um, one thing that the Trump White House has been quite successful at is uh, diversion and distraction. People can hypothesize all day about whether it's intentional or not intentional or whatever. So whether it is or not, something that Trump has been very successful about is getting people in the White House who detract from what's actually going on in the White House. And I think that what happened with Scaramucci last night is just a prime example of that. How how is anyone supposed to ignore that? Certainly like the media world. I guess. Well, I guess also like the one the one takeaway from this, even though it kind of was a distraction, is that it is indicative, again, of the power struggle that is underway in the White House. And it's interesting, the Obama administration used to claim they were the most transparent White House in history. And there have certainly been efforts by the Trump administration to roll back some of those transparencies, like the visitor logs, which, again, under Obama weren't perfect, but the Trump administration isn't releasing any of them. And yet, in some ways, because of the leaks that are coming out of the West Wing, the Trump administration is incredibly transparent. We know exactly what Anthony Scaramucci is thinking. Um, But there's another serious point in here that I want to get to, which is that the whole reason for this call, that the reason that Anthony Scaramucci reached out to Ryan Lizza was because Lizza had tweeted about this dinner. And Scaramucci called him and demanded, who leaked that to you? Lizza obviously told him, I can't give you that information. What Scaramucci did was respond by saying, I'm going to fire everybody. And then he said, I asked these guys not to leak anything and they can't help themselves. 
speaking to Liza, you're an American citizen. This is a major catastrophe for the American country. So I'm asking you as an American patriot to give me a sense of who leaked it. That's the communications director who's supposed to understand relationships with the press. And we went over on the record, off the record, he might not have a clear understanding of. But he's also someone who's threatening to bring in the FBI and the Justice Department to investigate leaks. And that's one thing if it's targeted at at people in his own administration. But it's another thing if he starts going after journalists, and we've seen this happen before, demanding that journalists reveal their sources. So while this is funny and profane and whatever, there's also a a pretty dark undercurrent to it. I mean... I do. I think that Scaramucci is is a clown. Um, <laughs> you don't think he's a dark master of? Uh, I don't. I he could don't, be a dark clown. I don't think he's <laughs> a scary. Clown. He could be like it. He could be it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just like. I don't. I think. I don't feel threatened by him. Like I don't think that that's like a serious. I don't know that threat. he necessarily is, but yeah. I do think that it's it kind of speaks to the larger trend right now, yeah. which is that it's just another way that the administration is chipping away at the maybe the public's perception of what should be trying to chip away what the public's perception of the media should be or that like you know if journalists aren't giving up these sources and they aren't american patriots i do think that what you're saying pete it does get to some truth that journalists are going to be attacked by the administration in an unprecedented way it even even yeah maybe trying to chip away at you know press freedom and how we do our jobs i don't i don't think it's going to have an effect on the way that we do our jobs as journalists do you think it's going to have an effect on the leakers in the administration or do you think the leaks are going to continue oh i think they're going to continue and if anything i think they're going to heighten nobody likes being told that they can't do something and being threatened in that way and so i think that anyone who was a leaker before or would have the pos- who would have the potential to be a leaker in the future only has more of a reason to do so now how are you going to instill loyalty when clearly the administration has no loyalty to you right and as we wait for those leakers to continue providing us with information one other source of news from the administration is the president's twitter feed and this is something we've talked a lot about in the past few weeks and how reporters might be paying too much attention to it and being too worried about President Trump's attacks on the failing New York Times or fake news CNN. But this week, I think, was actually a little bit of progress. Um, Donald Trump's tweets on Wednesday about the banning of transgender service members was huge news, right? It was a new policy that apparently the Department of Defense and the Pentagon in general didn't know was coming. But Earlier in the week, Trump was attacking the Washington Post, calling out Jeff Bezos and the Amazon connection, which, of course, isn't true. Amazon doesn't own the Post. Jeff Bezos does. And journalists kind of just let it slide. Yeah, I think this week was a good example for journalists about how we should be covering the president's tweets, which is something obviously we've been struggling with, a question we've been asking ourselves for so many months now, months that begin to feel like an eternity. And and to say that this week was progress feels um, almost counter to what it actually, I mean. Right. It was still a terrible yeah, like thing. Would, I think we all would agree that exactly. people who are willing to put their lives on the line, we should not care anything yeah. uh, so the about president, their identities. Exactly. So the president's tweets this week, they were not progress. They were far from it. Um, but I think that the press's handling of those tweets 
was showed some progress because, you know, like we've been saying for a while, and I think we're starting to get the idea that every time he tweets anything, that doesn't have to be huge breaking news. And every time he says something mean about somebody in the press, that that probably shouldn't be huge breaking news because he does it all the time. Right. So when he tweets, it doesn't have to consume the news cycle. You know, he tweeted something mean about the press earlier this week. We didn't really hear that much about it, which is the way it should be. He tweeted something that was really horrific. And that did get coverage as it should, because that's the kind of thing that really we should be paying attention to. And I think it kind of reinforces this notion that all tweets are not created equal in my mind. Um, so yeah, I think I think this is a really good example of judging a tweet on its merit. And I think that's progress. I think seeing journalists prioritize, I guess, what is important and what's not. You know, this is a new feature of presidential communication. It's taken us a little bit of time to catch up to how we should be treating those, and we'll see if this continues. But I would say this week was a step in the right direction. It's also taking the White House a bit of time to figure out how they should react to what the president tweets, because nobody in the administration apparently knew that he was going to be tweeting that. And so now, like, whether that's official, I mean, I guess it's, a, I mean, it's not official. It's official that he said it. Yeah, that's a good point. It, like all tweets, are official statements from the president. We'll see what tangible policy impact it has, but I guess hopefully this week's coverage is a sign that we're getting better at understanding which of those statements actually matter. All right, that was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank Leah Finnegan for sharing some of her time with us, and also my colleagues Christy Chisholm and Meg Dalton for joining me here in the studio. You can check out all the great content we have at cjr.org. And while you're there, subscribe to our daily newsletter, support us by becoming a member, or just tell your friends about The Kicker. We appreciate it, and we'll see you next week.